the biblical assumption in regard to regeneration is that humans are in need of a transformation because of spiritual deadness, because of total depravity and the inability to know God. And so that's where we begin. And that's not just an assumption we pull out of thin air. That's an assumption we take from Scripture, and you'll see that here as we go. But I do want to give you kind of a, a, a brief history of regeneration. And this will look familiar to you because it overlaps with some other doctrines, and I don't know if this is helpful to you or not, but um, there's the self-actualized regeneration view. These are, this is the view of Pelagians, semi-Pelagians, and liberals, that because humans do not possess original sin, that we don't possess total depravity, there's no need for a radical spiritual rebirth. Regeneration is even uh, sometimes called a process of ethical development, that it's something that happens over time. Whether they will say it or not, that is the default position of the seeker-sensitive movement. They believe that if you get an unbeliever into church, over a period of time, they become Christianized. And the seeker-sensitive movement would say, um, well, once they get here, we'll hit them hard with the gospel. The problem is they never do. It never happens. And so in practice, they are Pelagians. They're heretics. So uh, they, they don't preach a gospel that needs God. They preach a gospel that needs you to ethically reform yourself. There's the baptismal regeneration view. Uh, Roman Catholics and Lutherans. Some Lutherans, not all Lutherans. They would say that God gives regenerating grace through the sacrament of baptism. And so at the moment of baptism, this cleanses you from sin. This is, there's an infusion of regenerating grace um, and you are said to then be in union with Christ. Um, for children, baptismal regeneration is said to be based on the faith of a sponsoring adult. Um, for adults, it's based on faith and sometimes the works of the adult himself. Um, and, and so, and this is complex. Let me talk about Roman Catholicism for a minute. It's complex because um, they talk out of both sides of their mouth. First of all, they say that that you're regenerated at baptism, that that's, but then they'll say, but that's the starting point. And for the rest of your life, you need to perform these good works because they'll also say in Roman Catholicism that regeneration is a process and it's not completed until the end of your life. And so you're, you're kind of rolling the dice at the end of your life that your regeneration process has been completed. If you're close but no cigar, you go to purgatory. And you work off the rest of it. Isn't that a horrible system? And, and, and yet they fill uh, buildings that they call churches with people out of fear. Um, and out of uh, a sense that, well, if I just do enough good things, people are pretty optimistic about their ability to do good works. And so they kind of figure, ah, I think my score is doing pretty good. Now what's uh, confusing about this is that we do believe in baptism. Right, But we try to be very, very clear that baptism is a symbol of something that has already happened. It's not, it's not magical. There's nothing in the water that will save anybody. But baptismal regeneration is still um, a pretty prominent belief in American evangelicalism. Uh, church of Christ, baptismal regeneration all the way if you're, if you're a classic church of Christ. Then you have the presumptive or promissory regeneration. Presumptive or promissory regeneration still sounds a little bit Catholic, and there's a reason for that. This would be the view of, of many covenant reformed um, churches, and these, are, these would be churches that in most aspects of the gospel, we would be fully aligned with them. But what they would say is presumptive regeneration says that infants born to Christian parents possess the seeds of faith and of regeneration and so infant baptism is performed based on the presumption that res regeneration is beginning already. Well, what's that? why does that sound Catholic? Because it's left over from Catholicism. It's not a doctrine developed straight from Scripture. It's a doctrine developed from tradition. And you have to be very, very clear about this. If somebody says, well, I believe in infant baptism, it's a really simple question. Show me one example in Scripture. There's not one. Now, they will say, well, entire households were, were baptized, and that included the babies. Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. Um, let me ask you a question. If there's a, if there's a family of six, and you have 
uh, mom, dad, and an 18-year-old, 16-year-old, 14-year-old, and a two-year-old. And the three oldest kids and mom and dad all profess faith in Christ and get baptized. Would you say that that household has converted to Christ? Absolutely. So there, there's, no, there's no reason to say that that included infants in, in, as well. So that really is a faulty supposition. And it's frankly a little bit arrogant to say, well, my child will be saved because he's born to Christian parents. That's, that's, there's a problem with that. The problem with that is, how do you know? I've, I've been a pastor long enough to see married couples where after 20 years, one says, I've never been following Christ. I, it's, it's been all fake. So what about that child? Was he, does he halfway presumptive saved? So I would prefer to leave salvation to God and God alone. Now, for me personally, I absolutely believe that a child born in a Christian home, um, statistically, I think has a better shot of being saved. But that's not because of the parents, it's because of God. And that's God's kindness and blessing. But um, the closest uh, you should ever get to infant baptism is giving them a bath and praying over them. And that's about as close as we get. But then there's promissory regeneration. This is a little bit more common. Promissory regeneration introduces the baptized into the visible church and promises future regeneration. So this is very similar to presumptive regeneration. Presumptive is a guarantee. Um, Promissory uh, is more of a, or a guarantee rather that that regeneration is beginning right at that moment of baptism. Promissory, probably more in the circles that we might even run in, says that, yes, we acknowledge that God is the one who regenerates, but because we baptize this baby, that kind of guarantees that that's going to happen. And that sounds great, but enough of you have been around long enough to have raised children in the faith and see them turn away for a time to know that that's not reality. That just absolutely isn't realities. Then there's the, the synergistic regeneration. The Arminian view that the saved are those who cooperate with God's resistible, prevenient grace, which ironically is kind of an oxymoron. Um, prevenient grace says you have the ability to receive grace. Resistible says it's resistible. So which one is it? Uh, it's, it basically says the grace of God is kind of strong, but not super strong. And as a person cooperates with God, then they become regenerate. And so, in other words, who started the work? Well, it's kind of a close call. Uh, Arminians still pray for the salvation of people who are not saved, which I think is um, ironic because they believe that it's a human effort. So why would you pray? You shouldn't be praying to God. You should be talking to this person only and trying to convince them since they have to do the work. So it's kind of a close call, but there is a a key word is cooperation. That as I submit myself to God, then God regenerates me. Then you have the the view, um, should be the fifth one up there. One, two, three, four, five. Yes, the work of God in response to faith. And now we're getting close, and that would be more in the Reformed Evangelicals. We're, we're closer to that. And if you're reading Bruce Demarest, this is the view that he takes. And he says that regeneration is an instantaneous work of God, whereby God grants new spiritual life. Here's the key. By virtue of a person's conscious decision to repent of sins and appropriate the provisions of Christ's atonement. That kind of sounds like the one before it, Right? Because it is. It's just, it's just closer. I don't totally agree with that definition. I think we have to go farther than that. And that's the last one. This is the history of regeneration, historical views. Regeneration is a work of God which enables saving faith. You have to take it to that level because Scripture does. And that would be other Reformed uh, evangelicals. This fits much better with the idea of being born again. And we'll see this uh, grammatically here in Scripture. But we would go with the last one. Regeneration is a work of God which enables saving faith. Now, the timing on that, we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, here's an interesting thought. Regeneration is generally in our circles thought to be an exclusively New Testament concept, a church concept, a church age concept. I don't agree with that view. I don't think I see that in Scripture. Let me show you. Um, First of all, we know that regeneration was at least promised in the Old Testament. 
Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. But there is a present tense aspect to this. It doesn't say when, but the, the implication here is that you should want this. As an Israelite, you should desire this. Jeremiah thirty one thirty three. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's clearly future. That's, that's a regenerate Israel, a regenerate nation. Same thing in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the key. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What does this mean? It it means that God is promising that even to those who love the law, listen very carefully, because there were faithful Israelites who loved the law, all of Psalm 119, written by an author who loves the law, but he didn't have the power to keep it like a Christian does. And so what is being promised is that not only will you love my law, I will put my spirit in you and enable you to obey me and have power to obey me. Um, Is it possible to love the law of God, be a true, genuine believer, yet not have the power to obey like a Christian does? Absolutely. We call them Old Testament saints. And so uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. So at some level, there's a debate as to whether Old Testament saints were regenerated. But we do know this. Old Testament saints were saved. Now, I grew up in a system that said the Old Testament saints were, were just, there's this mysterious, ethereal thing, and really God's work on earth started at the birth of Jesus. That's an ignorant view. Because as you read through, you're going to tell me that Daniel and Job and Moses and Noah were not saved men? In fact, the Hebrew word for grace is applied to all of those men, that God gave them grace. Abraham as well. So are there saved men in the Old Testament? Absolutely. What does that mean? It means they must be, what? Forgiven. So if they're forgiven, if they're saved, does that mean they're regenerate? Well, we wouldn't say that they're regenerate in exactly the same sense that a New Testament saint is. There's, it's probably tied to differing roles, um, particularly tied to one thing that we know for certain, that uh, blank page between Malachi and Matthew, if you were going to keep that in your Bible and you were going to write one thing, what's new now? The answer to that question is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is clearly new covenant. But regeneration demands that there's a heart change. And so let me ask you this. Did anybody here, by show of hands, anybody here uh, either grow up in a, in a system or hear preaching about how basically all of Israel is completely faithless? Anybody hear that? Okay. What's the problem with that? Habakkuk 2.4, God promises Israel that the righteous will live by what? Faith. What does he do? You remember the big circle of big Israel? Everybody descended from Abraham. And little circle, everybody descended from Abraham who has genuine internal reality of faith in God. What did David pray after he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah? Did he say, create in me a new ability to keep your external law? What did he say? Creating me a clean what? Heart. You cannot go through the Old Testament and honestly say that there is not an internal heart change at some level with a true believer. Let me put it to you this way. When God is condemning Israel as as a nation in Isaiah 1, and if you grew up in a system that says that... uh, that in the Old Testament, you pleased God by obeying the law. Really? 
He says this, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What does he mean? You've been sacrificing animals year after year after year after year and there's no internal reality. It makes me sick. It makes me puke. You're pretending to have an internal reality while going through religious externals. So I can't go as far as to say that there's no regeneration to an Old Testament saint. Would you say that John the Baptist um, was unregenerate? We can't say that. We know that the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit from, from the womb, so he might be an exception. But would you say that uh, Daniel didn't have the Holy Spirit? I mean, he's giving visions and dreams. How about you? I've never done that. So I, I think this is so important because it changes how you read the Old Testament. It changes how you see the saints in the Old Testament. You can look up to them and you don't have to say, well, if they knew what I knew, they'd be much better people. Boy, I'd love to be half as holy as David, half as holy as Daniel. So could we say that there is a difference in the new covenant? Absolutely. That major difference is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But regeneration, I'm going to fall on the side of saying that there is a form of regeneration in the Old Testament because God demanded heart change. And he demanded obedience from a real heart, not from just external um, religiosity. So that's in the Old Testament. That's a little tougher for us to grasp. How about in the New Testament? This is where we, we can really dig into that last that last definition that regeneration as a work of God which enables saving faith. One of our key passages, John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, this is speaking to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word here again may be translated from above. Unless he is born from above. Again works also. But the second birth is a birth from above. It is from God. That's very clear in the in the lexical meaning here. The new birth is a spiritual birth, which is in contrast to the physical birth. So that's why we can translate it again. Obviously, there's two births. Two verses later, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, here's where we want to be technical. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that is a passive verb. In Greek, a passive verb is not something you do yourself. It is not a decision you make. It is not something you effect. It is something that is done to you. It is something that you are just a, 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 by, a, a, a bypassing, or you're just a, an innocent bystander, and all of a sudden, you're born again. Doesn't that go contrary to every, everything we've grown up hearing? You hear the sermon, you must be what? Born again. If you put in the passive verb and you give God the credit, that's abs- absolutely true. If that's a sermon that says you must walk down the aisle and get born again, that is, that is not consistent with Scripture. Man does not bring about regeneration. The Holy Spirit produces regeneration. And Jesus even used an illustration what was the illustration he used in that passage that the, the spirit is like what? The wind. You don't go out and control the wind. The wind does what it's going to do. Now, there's a lot of questions about what does it mean born of water and born of the spirit. That's, that's very simply a reference to Ezekiel 37 that an Old Testament teacher like Nicodemus would be very familiar with, or Ezekiel 36 rather, I will sprinkle clean water on you, you will be clean. That's cleansing from filthiness and from all your idols, and then you get a new heart. So there's a cleaning of the house and an occupying of the house. Does that make sense? Born of water, born of the Spirit. You have Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Here it is again, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so regeneration is linked to two things, washing and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's the, the, the water and the Spirit. Again, it's not two separate elements. It's, it's all the same thing. 
It's parallel to being born again. Uh, obviously, it's not water baptism. I can't believe how many people preach that John 3 is speaking of you have to be baptized and then you have to be regenerated. Jesus didn't say that. It's not baptism. Um, and it can't be for Nicodemus because Christian baptism didn't exist yet. So he couldn't be born again if that was the case. It's not speaking of being physically born. Uh, there's no need to teach you that you must be physically born first. Oh, thank you for telling me. I'm so glad that I, I wouldn't have known that. That doesn't make any sense. So again, water and the Spirit go together to refer symbolically to spiritual renewal and cleansing. They go together. I put some other passages up here for you. John 1.13, that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I don't know how much more obvious you can get. Like, like God eliminates all other possibilities. Not born of blood. What does that mean? It means that, that you're not saved because uh, somebody you're in a really great family. You're not saved because you were born in a certain country or state. Nor of the will of the flesh. You're not saved because your parents decided you would be saved. Nor the will of man. You're not saved because you decided you would be saved. You're saved because God decided you would be saved. So it's, it's absolutely clear. And that's just what Scripture says. That's not a theological viewpoint it's just scripture. And so the new birth isn't based on man's effort, but by the will of God. It doesn't diminish faith. And we'll get to that in a, in a bit here. We have 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, and this is as obvious as it gets, has caused us to be born again. That's completely on God to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 20 verses later, 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. Oh, now we get a little bit more information. What did the Spirit of God use to regenerate you? The imperishable seed of the word, the gospel. That, I, I have the most exciting job in the world because I have behind the very words that we read from this pulpit, the power of God going forth. That is phenomenal. Hey, can you imagine that in sales? You know, if every three out of ten people that, that I sell to is going to make a million dollar sale, I'd be a salesman. I'm selling the one thing that's free and yet costs God everything. So, it's very exciting. Colossians 2.13 And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And by the way, um, I, I'm not sure how this got communicated, but at some point um, before he went home to be with the Lord, um, Tim asked that I preach on the doctrine of regeneration at his memorial. So we'll do that on, on Saturday. Um, he wants me to preach. He, he wrote down a sermon title called But God. So that's what we'll preach because it's glorious, isn't it? Absolutely glorious. James 1.18, this is just like eating dessert in Scripture here. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures or creation. So this is clearly of God in the New Testament. And what are the results? I'll give you a little list here of results. I'll just go through this quickly. You, you receive a divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 And I know it, it may not feel like you have a divine nature sometimes, but that's the great thing about the gospel is that you, you, your soul is ready to go to heaven right now. Now you're encumbered by your flesh at the moment, but your soul is ready. You have a divine nature. What does that mean? It means that your nature is now compatible to meet the divine that you are ready to meet God at any time. That's a, that's a beautiful truth. Isn't that better than the, than the Catholic lie of, uh, well, I hope this works out? Another result, a new self. Ephesians 4.24, and the implication of the new self is, what are we told in Ephesians? Put off the old and do what? Put on the new. In other words, you have a new self. Stop acting like the old one. That's very encouraging because it means we're empowered to do so. You're a new creation. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I don't know how you really can talk about losing your salvation when you're a new creation. That, that makes no sense. You have a new mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16, that we have the mind of Christ. Now, when, when Paul says we have the mind of Christ, it doesn't mean that we know everything that God knows, but what it means is that we do have infallible truth. We know things. This whole, uh, the whole conference we had yesterday is all about pushing back against the, this horrible doctrine of uncertainty, that you can't know anything. We know the most eternal truths that we need to know. So we have a new mind. And we can understand them. Why is it that you, if, if you can stand it, why is it that you, that you can watch uh, liberal uh, news sources and even conservative ones from unsaved people who are trying to tell you what the Bible says? And it just comes off as idiocy because they don't have a new mind. The, the Bible has not come alive to be the word of God to them. We have a new heart. Romans 5.5 5 says that the Holy Spirit has poured out His love into our hearts. And so we're, we're, we're changed. We're different. We have, a, we have a softness to us. We have, a, we have a, a hope for our world based on what Christ will do. Why is it that we can look at our enemies and have compassion on them and, and wish for them to know God? It's because we have a new heart. We have a new will to obey God. Romans 6.13. You have a new desire. When somebody says, well, I'm a Christian now, but my desires haven't changed, then you're not a Christian now. Because by the definition of regeneration, then you, you can't possibly be a believer. You know, there's a new desire to obey God. And, and this is, um, you know, sometimes when you're talking to an unbeliever, they might say, well, I... You know, I, I like the idea of being a Christian, but boy, then I got to obey all those rules. No, you don't. You want to obey all those rules. You want to obey because all of a sudden you're beholden to this amazing God who has given you eternal life. Why would you not want to please him? And so I, I'm just very upfront with unbelievers. No, you don't, you don't have to obey a single rule when you become a Christian. They're like, seriously? Yep, you don't have to do one. Now you will want to obey you'll have a new desire in your heart because right now you are obeying rules. Oh no, I'm my own person. Really? You're a drunk. You're obeying a bottle. Um, you, you hate your wife. You're obeying your passions and you can just walk through their sin. You're, you're a slave to your sin. You're already obeying a bunch of rules. They're just terrible rules. So come to faith in Christ. Get a new will to obey God. And then you have circumcision of the heart. Colossians 2.11, that's, that's kind of a, using an Old Testament term to talk about that you're just overall a new person. So that would kind of be divine nature, new self, new creature, new mind, new heart, new will, all rolled into one phrase. If you told a genuine Old Testament Jew who loves God, do you have a desire for God? The phrase they would use is, yes, I want, and they would use this from Deuteronomy, I want to have a circumcised heart. That I'm not just an external follower of God, I am an internal follower of God. So, those are the results of, of regeneration. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Now, I said we would talk about regeneration in faith. So, here's the debate. Are regeneration and faith Simultaneous. Or does faith come first or does regeneration come first? Now, I've already kind of tipped my hand on this one, but uh, I want to walk through this in a little more detail. Um, first of all, we have to acknowledge the mysterious nature of regeneration. Uh, John 3, 8, here's, here's the most we know about it. The wind blows where it wishes, so you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So what have we got? Regeneration is like the wind. That's it. That's what we have. So there's, there's absolutely um, a mysterious nature to this because it comes from God and, and God is mysterious in many ways. Then there's the view though that says that regeneration and faith are simultaneous. The regeneration takes place instantaneously at the moment 
of saving faith. I'm hesitant on that view because it can sound a lot like um, the Arminian view of synergistic, the working together regeneration, that the saved are those who cooperate with God's resistible, prevenient grace, and that at the same moment that a person cooperates with God, they become regenerate. So I'm uncomfortable with that view. Then there is the faith comes first view. Demarest, in his book, uh, defines it this way. God grants new spiritual life by virtue of the individual's conscious decision to repent of sins and appropriate the provisions of Christ's atonement. Um, Now, that's a Demarest view, but he is fair. He's a good scholar. He says this. Some authorities view regeneration as logically prior to conversion. He also says, I'm sorry, Milton Erickson in his theology says this, quote, regeneration is the other side of conversion. It is completely God's doing. It is God's transformation of an individual believer, his giving spiritual vitality and direction to their lives when they accept Christ. I, I don't like that definition because it looks a lot like regeneration is a result of accepting Christ. And, and if you've been here any period of time, uh, we try really hard not to use the phrase Will you accept Christ? Because that's not the question. The question is, will Christ accept you? And that's a better question. So the faith comes first. To be very fair, um, that isn't the same as the Arminian view. The Arminian view says, you've worked this up yourself. Demarest view is more uh, closer to the, the simultaneous, but faith barely came first. So again, I think we need to go all the way to the regeneration comes first view. Grudem says it this way. It is natural to understand that regeneration comes before saving faith. It is this work of God that gives us the spiritual ability to respond to God in faith. Now, when we say comes before saving faith, here's the million dollar question. How long before? I don't know. I don't think anybody does. It's important to remember that in my experience, They come so close together that it probably looks like it's happening at the same time. Now, does that make it an irrelevant argument? Not at all. Because the argument is important for who gets glory. And that's that's relevant for your whole Christian life. Every Sunday, you realize this? Every Sunday, your attitude walking in these doors is dependent upon your uh, your view of the doctrine of regeneration. If faith came, came first, there's a little bit of pride and going to church, I'm so glad I figured this out. And then God regenerated me. If regeneration comes first, there's no pride walking in these doors. We come to acknowledge that God and God alone did the work of salvation. So it's not just an intellectual argument, but we would say this. Uh, is it possible for somebody to be regenerate and then exercise saving faith at some later time? Theoretically, yes. I think our experience would tell us that generally they, they're, they're pretty much right next to each other. But there are passages that tell us that regeneration precedes faith. It's before conversion. John 3, 5, again, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's the order? Born of water and the Spirit and then entering the kingdom. So there is clearly an order. If we define entering the kingdom as being converted, then regeneration comes first. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So what's the order? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's very clear. Acts sixteen fourteen. one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We might even say that's an example of the Lord opening her heart. She paid attention to the word and then she exercised faith. And there might have been a few minutes in between there. I I don't know. The Lord only knows. I've seen this and I I can't tell for certain, but I've, I've seen people and some of you, maybe some of them who have come to church for two or three or four months and you can tell that something's happening with them. They're getting gripped by the word of God. They don't know what it is. They come talk to me and say, what's happening to me? I, my life's being turned upside down. And I'm not ready to be a Christian, but something is going on in me. I, well, I think you're getting regenerated is what it sounds like. You're hearing the word. 
what would we say to that person? I would say that the book of Hebrews preaches to that person today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because according to Hebrews 6, it's possible to hear the gospel and to get close to the truth and then turn away. Does that mean you can undo the effects of regeneration? No, but from a human standpoint, um, we would warn that person. So um, I, I know some of you here have had that experience where you just know God's turning your life upside down. You don't know what's happening exactly. And then one day you go, I'm not, I think I'm a Christian. I think that's what happened. I've told this story before, but I had the joy of preaching to this uh, Korean youth group for two years while I was in seminary. And these, this brother and sister would sit in the back looking at the clock 10,000 times. It just, they couldn't be over fast enough and just looking like they were dying. And all of a sudden, one Sunday, I think it was sister first, her name was Emily. And then a few weeks later, her brother Brandon, they're just taking notes like crazy and asking me questions. And I said, I, I got to ask you, you guys don't look like you're ready to commit suicide while I'm preaching now. What's going on? And Emily said, I, I'm not sure. I think I got saved. This is very matter of fact. So somewhere in there, what happened? The wind blew. There's a faulty belief that we often tell people in the gospel. And I, I, I think we should be very precise with the gospel. If you believe in Christ as your Savior, then you will be born again. That's not accurate. You tell them the gospel. You must believe. God will do the work to help them to believe, but he must do that work. The wind blows where it will. It's not something we cause to happen. <clears throat> now, interestingly, I looked at our doctrinal statement for Grace Bible Church, and it actually leaves both possibilities open. It says, regeneration is accompanied, is, I'm sorry, is accomplished when the repentant sinner, as enabled by the Holy Spirit, responds in faith to the divine provision of salvation. As enabled by the Holy Spirit, there's some sense of divine awakening that has to happen. At that point, I think we're splitting hairs and I'm, I'm fine with that statement. But the important thing in regeneration is that God starts the work, not man. That's so clear, so important. So let me summarize this doctrine then with just a few little points here. We can get, sorry, can you advance the next slide? It doesn't seem to like me again. Just kind of in summary here. There we go. It's not something we feel. It's not something we tangibly experience with our five senses. Um, it, it's interesting that certain doctrines of the Holy Spirit have been co-opted by the charismatic movement. Uh, baptism of the Spirit, that's something that supposedly happens later on, and, and, and we've talked about that in, uh, in pneumatology. Um, but because regeneration is very much a Reformed concept, and understanding from Scripture, and it actually takes studying the Bible to know it, you don't hear that in charismatic circles. Come forward to be regenerated. Well, it's not something you experience, except to, except to maybe, if you want to count your mind as a sense, what you experience is, I want to obey God. I'm sorry for my sin. I need to have faith in Christ. That's your experience. It's your life has changed. But it's not, it's not something you feel. You don't get tinglys or anything like that. It's a supernatural occurrence. It is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. Regeneration results in a divine nature, that circumcised heart. Regeneration involves a counteracting of the effects of sin, specifically the effect of sin in rejecting the gospel. That's the major effect of, of your total depravity is that you were rejecting the gospel because you were unable to receive the gospel um, without regeneration and regeneration is also beginning the process of growth that continues for a lifetime. And this spiritual maturation process is called sanctification. So those are just some, some thoughts on regeneration. And I'm going to look ahead at my notes here and see if we want to get started on perseverance. How about this? I will get started in a moment, but I want to see if you have any questions or comments about regeneration first, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, Logan. That John the Baptist is, he goes down in history as just a weirdo, kind of, spiritually. Um, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. But he also is in very, very high company with the prophet Jeremiah um, in, in the fact that Scripture says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, um, his, you don't see a lot of 
indwelling work. He doesn't define the people of God by indwelling that happens in the new covenant. But what he does do is he empowers certain individuals for certain tasks. Um, This is why King David prayed, let not your spirit depart from me. He's not saying, I don't want to lose my salvation. He's saying, I don't want to lose the empowerment to be the, the godly king of Israel that you've called me to be. And so for John the Baptist, he is a guy who is going to be the Elijah of, Mal- of the end of Malachi. He is going to be the, the forerunner of Christ. And so God just zapped him. Why is it that John the Baptist leapt in the womb of his mother when the baby Jesus in the womb of his mother was, was around? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So um, I, I would say regeneration, indwelling, everything happened with him. That doesn't mean he was a perfect kid. Um, his parents died when he was very young. He was probably raised out in the desert by a group called the Essenes um, who were uh, very, very, uh, very, very strict in their uh, understanding of the law. They were so mad at, at uh, legalism and Jewish leaders that they wouldn't participate in temple worship, any of that. And so when John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness, we think that's a little weird that he's, you know, uh, wearing skins and, and a belt of, made of rope and eating bugs and things like that. But all the Essenes did that. That was kind of their lifestyle. Um, so he was just specially, specially anointed and we're thankful for that. Um, so there was no, no, taking no chances with John the Baptist on that one. It'd be kind of bad if John the Baptist is about to start preaching Christ is coming and decides to go off and be a plumber. Um, that wouldn't have worked out too well. So yeah, he would be, he would be an exception, I think. Good question. What else about regeneration? Yeah. You have to be regenerated to be saved. Everybody would agree with that, right? Yes. I think, by, I think by the time, and the, the question is, if you have to be regenerate to be saved, and everybody would understand this or agree with that, but then you talk about Old Testament saints and you say that there's no regeneration in the Old Testament, then are you saying that there's no Old Testament saints? I, by the time you get to that point in the conversation, that's the most they've ever thought about it. So, yeah, you know, I never thought of that. I was thinking, you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they must have been pretty good guys, but didn't think about whether they're regenerate or not. So at that point, you hit a wall in the conversation, and that's probably new information, I, I would guess. Um, I mean, I always wondered that too. I, when I was a kid, what I wondered was, were the apostles Christians before Christ died on the cross? Because there was no such thing as a Christian. Um, they were Old Testament saints. And how do we know this? Because they loved Christ, they wanted to follow him, but they couldn't do it. You look in the Gospel of Mark, three times Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and be raised on the third day. And three times the apostles acted like idiots right after that. Why? Because they were saved men, not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, were they specially empowered? Christ empowered them at one time to go perform miracles and cast out demons. But that's an Old Testament empowerment prior to the filling of the Holy Spirit? Why is Peter all putting his foot in his mouth all the time and all of a sudden becomes the premier preacher of the church for the first 10 chapters of Acts? Because he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So did, we got off on that, but that was fine. Um, so yeah, I think at that point in the conversation, that's going to be new information to them. And at Psalm 51 is a great place to go. Here's two questions. You ask somebody, first of all, do you believe that to be a follower of God, something inside has to happen. I think most Christians will say, yeah. Uh, second question, do you believe that happened in the Old Testament? Well, I never thought about it. So take him to Psalm 51, creating me a clean what? Heart. That's jaw-dropping. That's jaw-dropping. Then you can take him other, any, any other place that, where God says, I want, um, in Deuteronomy 30, he says, you will have circumcised heart. Deuteronomy 10, he says, you must have a circumcised heart. Wait a minute, that's future and present. Absolutely. So I, I think that'll be a new conversation for them. Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, Joe. At what point 
That is a great question. The disciples were saved the same way Abraham was saved. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. When Jesus called them, they were either already believers or they were uh, they, they became believers. There was one exception. Judas was a faker. Um, when he blew on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that's a future tense verb that basically should be translated, you will receive the Holy Spirit. So, um, so when, we think of, when we think of that moment of conversion, it's, it's a little bit more hard to grasp um, in their case. Uh, I don't know. Um, was Thomas saved? Absolutely. Did, boy, he gets a raw deal as Doubting Thomas. Do you realize that Thomas gave the single greatest confession of Christ ever in the New Testament? My Lord and my what? God. My Lord and my God. So um, was he saved? Absolutely. So I, I, I would say we can't say that they were just like unregenerate pagans and God was, was working through them and then all of a sudden at Pentecost they got saved. At Pentecost they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they were full-on Old Testament saints, with the exception of the faker, who was Judas. Ironically, more educated than the other 11. So, um, so we would put them in a transitional time, but I would classify them as Old Testament saints until the cross. At the moment of the cross, remember Abraham it was, uh, re- believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. That their, the payment for his sin was on credit. Christ was going to pay. At the moment Christ died, he said it is finished and payment for sin was made. So at that moment, there's no more credit. It's full payment at that, at that time. So it's a great thought though. And, and, you, and you read the disciples and you think, these guys are idiots sometimes. That's because they're Old Testament saints not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they believed Christ. And Peter, boy, you think about John 6 when Jesus was ministering to tens of thousands of people and then when they came back the next day because they thought it was breakfast time after he fed the 5,000 men plus, plus women and children and they think it's breakfast time and he condemns them. He, said, he basically says, you're coming to me because you want breakfast. But if you want me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must take me in fully. And what does that say? Almost all of them left. And you have the, the 12 standing around looking at each other. And Jesus says, are you going to leave too? What did Peter say? Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, yeah, idiots who were saved, <laughs> who loved the Lord, and then just became fireballs with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So isn't that convicting that men without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit were that faithful? That's convicting to me. So we have no excuse, do we? So, all right, good question. Thank you. We got off on that. That was fun. I guess we won't do perseverance today. Let's do uh, any more questions on on uh, regeneration. Yeah. Say that again. I, I'm, Oh, when he when he takes the bride, well, you mean how does that fit with regeneration? Well, our regeneration. I think I read a quote here. Starts the process of sanctification, and so regeneration is necessary for that process to start. Um, it is a guaranteed process. Romans eight tells us that we will be conformed to the image of the Son. And so when we gather around the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is not only with all regenerate people, but all fully 100% sanctified people. Ironically, the church will finally get along with itself when we're in the presence of Christ. So that's, that's when regeneration is finished and complete. And, and I guess we would call regeneration the beginning of sanctification. So that, that's a great question. Anything else? Yeah, Deb. Yes, but you know what? I, I have no problem telling an unbeliever, you need to repent and believe, but I'm praying that God will allow you to do that because it's, it's his permission that allows you to do that. So I, I'm praying that, that God will give you permission to believe in him. That's kind of a little different thing. Um, 
It used to be uh, years and years ago, I worked in the residential treatment center for kids, really, really messed up kids. And we had a school on campus and teenagers would come and they first thing they do, they say, I'm not going to school. And we always had the same line. Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't let you know going to school is a privilege. You're not allowed to go to school until we let you go to school. <laughs> well, I want to go to school. <laughs> no. So I so tell an unbeliever, you must repent and you must believe. And I don't have a problem telling an unbeliever, pray for faith. Pray for faith. Mark chapter 9, Lord, help my unbelief. So I just give him that prayer. You need to pray for faith. You need to pray for God to open your heart. We did that with all of our kids. Tell them to pray for faith. We made it school assignments. I mean, if you can, you know, why not? So you must pray for faith. So yeah, you, you don't keep that a secret from them. I'm not big on telling unbelievers about the doctrine of election. I, I don't see that as being useful. That's something that you find out later and go, wow, thank you, Lord, you know, that, that, that you chose me. So um, but I have no problem telling an unbeliever, you must repent and believe, but you can't do it on your own. So I'm praying that God empowers you to do so because your heart is closed. Look at the fact that you're right now, Flipping the coin, maybe I'll go to hell, maybe I'll go to heaven. I think I'll risk it. I think I'll roll the dice. Tells me you're unable to come to faith. So you you ask the Lord to help them and you tell them, I'm praying for you. I'm going to pray for you every day that God opens your eyes. <clears throat> so that, that's what I would do. Did that, Was that the right answer or the right question rather? It, it is an excuse. And you would say, you're absolutely right. Your life has shown that he has not started the work in you yet. So you need to pray for faith. You just return it right back to that. Yeah. Uh, what about the word in Galatians? Absolutely. Well, that's, uh, that's your secret weapon. First Peter one you you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. Somebody says, I don't, I don't, Believe all the stuff. I don't even like having this conversation. Well, are you willing to read the Bible? Why don't you go read the Bible? And they, to them, it'll be like, yeah, it's like reading Plato or, or uh, you know, Shakespeare. Sure, I'll, I'll read the good literature. In fact, you can say this. This was a common uh, tactic in the 70s and 80s, and I like it. Um, why don't you just go read the biography of Jesus Christ? Oh, really? I didn't know there was one. Yeah, there's four of them. They, they happen to be in the Bible. You know what most people, by the way, don't know about the Bible? They don't know that it's a library of books. They don't know that. So if you point it out to them, yeah, the, the Bible is a whole bunch of different books, and there's four of them that are the biographies of Jesus. Why don't you go read one? <clears throat> people are willing to do that, and then you're praying like crazy because that's when that's, that's the, the gospel is the power of God. The salvation. All right. Well, that was fun, but we need to we need to be done. Thank you for your attentiveness, and and we'll get to perseverance next time. I hope we're not going too slow for you, but these are just rich truths, and sometimes it's nice to savor each bite a little bit. So let's pray. Our Father, what a joy it is! This is such a an amazing doctrine that you have saved us before we knew we needed saving, while we were shaking our fist at you, you grab hold of our hand and you pull us out of the miry clay. We are so thankful to you for saving us. Might our worship this morning reflect our gratitude. We pray in Christ's name, amen.